Hello and welcome to Look Around You, Public Health Matters. We are with the Master of Public Health Program at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. With me today are a couple of familiar voices, Ibrahim Alasafra. Hello. Ria Kohli. Hi. And a newcomer to the podcast, BJ Sholaru. BJ, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is BJ Sholaru. I am an MBA and MPH dual degree student in the uh, Case Western program. Great. Thanks, BJ, for being here. We appreciate it. Uh, we are very excited for today's episode, and we hope all of our listeners are too. Uh, we're joined today by Dr. Toby Cosgrove. Dr. Cosgrove is the former president and chief executive officer of the Cleveland Clinic and currently serves as an executive advisor for the health system. Dr. Cosgrove is a sought-after speaker worldwide. He has addressed the World Economic Forum annual meeting in, at Davos, Switzerland, and the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in Washington, D.C., is regularly quoted and featured in national magazines and newspapers, including the cover story in Time and major articles in Newsweek, The New York Times, The Washington Post. He has appeared on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, The Charlie Rose Show on PBS and other national media outlets. The recipient of the Cleveland Clinic's Master Clinician Award, Innovator of the Year Award and Learner Humanitarian Award, Dr. Cosgrove is also a member of the Cleveland Medical Hall of Fame and Cleveland, Cleveland Business Hall of Fame. In 2007, he was named Cleveland Business Executive of the Year by the Sales and Marketing Executives of Cleveland and Castle Connolly's National Physician of the Year. He also received the Woodrow Wilson Center Award for Public Service, as well as Harvard Business School's Award from HBS Alumni Cleveland and the Humanitarian Award of the Diversity Center of Northeast Ohio. Dr. Cosgrove topped Inside Business's Power 100 listing for Northeast Ohio and is highly ranked among modern healthcare's 100 most powerful people in healthcare and most powerful physician executives. So needless to say, we are honored to have Dr. Cosgrove with us today to share some of his expertise of years of healthcare experience, experience right here in our backyards in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Cosgrove, thank you and welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So our first question, let's just dive into it. Uh, you know, it's virtually impossible to discuss healthcare and public health without talking about COVID-19 at least a little bit. So, so let's actually get started there. Uh, obviously COVID-19 has, has impacted healthcare and public health uh, in, in many, many ways as we all see on a daily basis. Uh, but specifically, how, how has COVID changed uh, the way hospitals operate? And um, you know, how have hospitals response to the pandemic had an effect on the healthcare system broadly? I don't think there's any question that uh, COVID has been a watershed uh, event in how healthcare is delivered across the, the world uh, and across the United States. We've seen uh, hospitals have to change the way they deliver care. And perhaps one of the biggest things that's come out of this is the realization that everybody does not have to go to visit a physician in his office. And telehealth has gone from about 2% of the uh, visits uh, outpatient visits and during COVID to 60% and now back to about 20% of, of visits. Uh, uh, and the technology to do this has increased enormously. Also, we've seen uh, healthcare begin to migrate out of the hospital uh, with a, an increasing number of uh, procedures and uh, tests, et cetera, moving to home and to outpatient facilities across the country. Technology, particularly uh, around IT, has uh, brought enormous opportunities. And I think we all have to take our hats off to the pharmaceutical industry, which has uh, developed uh, vaccines 
uh, that are incredibly effective and incredibly safe in record amounts of time, which in fact have saved hundreds of thousands of lives, if not millions of lives around the world. So uh, it's been a tectonic uh, shift in, in healthcare. And I think it's made us re-examine everything we do about how we deliver care, uh, where it's done and who does it. So speaking of, of telemedicine, you know, right before the pandemic, I think telemedicine was something that was starting to gain in popularity, but it sort of forced providers' hands into adopting it literally overnight in some cases. Uh, and, and I would think that perhaps it's here to stay. Do you think that telemedicine, uh, perhaps as an example, is, is here to stay? Uh, or has, you know, has COVID-19 permanently changed anything? Do you think any of these changes are, are here for the long term? Oh, I don't think there's any question that telemedicine is here to stay. You know, it's interesting that uh, I couldn't get anybody interested in telemedicine before COVID. Maybe 1% of the visits done that way. Patients weren't interested. Doctors weren't interested. Um, payment systems weren't aligned to it. Practicing across state lines uh, did not allow it. COVID changed all that. Uh, and I don't think there's any way that we're going back to where we were before. I think this is a permanent change. Uh, and frankly, for the better. The other thing I'm seeing is technology uh, that is in, improving the way we can take care of people at home. Just let me give you one example. There's a company that, which now has something about the size of a stick of gum, which you put your fingers on and give you an electrocardiogram. Um, there are algorithms now that uh, can take those uh, EKGs and predict whether you're going to go into atrial fibrillation in the next six months. Um, this is a huge change that is combining technology, uh, home health care, and IT um, uh, using artificial intelligence to really change the way we think and deliver, think about and deliver healthcare. So that actually uh, brings uh, us to a, a something else we want to talk about. In terms of IP, um, Recently, the U.S. decided to back waiving patents for the, the COVID-19 vaccine. And some people might view that as a tension between incentivizing innovation and advancing public health. Um, how should the interplay of innovation and public health work at its best? I think that's a very difficult uh, question right now. And there's no question that uh, waiving patents uh, as short-term effect uh, but whether or not it gives the right incentives for companies to be uh, developing things which cost them hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to develop, whether that's the right uh, long-term approach or not, I think is a real question. My guess is that this is a very short-term gain for uh, not a long-term gain. Um, and uh, I think that uh, these companies uh, have been reluctant to develop vaccines in the past um, because there was not uh, any financial incentives to do it. Um, now uh, they have benefited hugely from a huge uh, financial investment. Uh, there's no question that uh, we have a moral responsibility, but I think we have to find the middle ground between protecting um, uh, the incentives for uh, pharmaceutical companies to develop uh, things which are very risky to develop and uh, moral responsibility to continue to try and protect the world uh, and reduce the, the uh, influence of an increasingly uh, deadly uh, virus. If you look at what's going on in India right now with a much more virulent um, 
form of this uh, disease, we realize we really have to bring COVID under control. And I don't think it's going to go away ever. Um, and so we're going to have to continue to, to develop vaccines. And it's important that people have incentives to do that. So leading right in with that, um, we know a lot of public health revolves around population health and the health um, and addressing those social determinants of health. But recently, we've seen more of a shift for hospitals to engage um, with public health and to shift to address these social determinants of health as well. So how can hospital systems and public health systems better work together in order to improve population health? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a terrific question. Um, and you stop and, and look at what uh, the determinants of uh, long-term uh, health and wellness are. And only about uh, 10 to 15% of those is access to medical professionals. Um, about 30% is your genome. And the remainder are the influences of uh, the way you live and where you live. Um, and it's increasingly clear that these are enormous determinants. Just to, let, let me give you an example. Right here in Cleveland, within a mile, uh, the life expectancy varies by 20 years, um, which is astounding. Um, now, uh, here, here's the dilemma. Uh, in the United States, we have uh, directed our uh, efforts at trying to cure uh, sickness once it's developed. Uh, and uh, there has been not that much emphasis on uh, preventing it. And I don't think there's any question that the United States probably leads the world in the ability to do that. Um, but on the other hand, uh, our costs of healthcare and um, our life expectancy is, um, is, uh, are not on a par with the rest of the world. For example, um, in Europe, um, they spent uh, much less uh, than we do, uh, about 12% instead of 18% of the GDP. Um, and they're spending more on social uh, issues. But if you look at uh, the distribution, uh, the United States is really sort of fourth if you combine cost of healthcare and social programs. Um, we're spending much more on healthcare and less on social programs. Um, and similarly, they are spending more on social programs um, and less on healthcare. Uh, so I think there is a, a great need for increasing emphasis on the social determinants of uh, health. Um, interestingly, right here in Cleveland, one of the things that has become clear is that it's just not the hospitals that are going to lead the, the way here. Uh, first of all, uh, we're not paid uh, to do that. Uh, we're not trained to do that. We don't have the staff to do that. Um, and it is going to require uh, a uh, coordination amongst all of the uh, organizations uh, that there are in the community to begin to address these. One of the interesting things that's happened in Cleveland is United Way has taken up the fight around lead. Um, and if you look at uh, children in Cleveland, 50% of them have lead in their blood, which influences the, um, the uh, mental uh, development, which leads to uh, less success in schools, which leads to not, not as good a job, which leads to increasing poverty. Um, I applaud that. Uh, the same thing that they have done around housing, uh, they provided uh, the opportunity to have legal counsel for anybody who's getting evicted. 
Um, so we need to have a coordination amongst all of these agencies um, and not just healthcare, because it's clearly beyond uh, the capability and the financial uh, capability of uh, the healthcare organizations uh, to be able to do that. Um, and so I think uh, as we begin to understand these social determinants better and better, um, we begin to understand that they all lead back, frankly, to poverty. Um, that's the common denominator of, of all of these. And so um, I think things, uh, one of the things that you've seen the Cleveland Clinic do is now uh, raise uh, minimum wage to $15. Um, and uh, it is a, a major employer and many other organizations are following the same way. So complex problem, but not something just the hospitals are gonna be able to solve by, their, by, their, by themselves. I think everybody now recognizes the importance of the social determinants um, uh, and uh, begin to try to address these, not just as uh, uh, solving the issue once it's occurred, but trying to prevent it. So I'll jump in with um, kind of a business-oriented question in that regard. Um, in order to get organizations like hospitals and others to address social determinants of health, what do you think needs to happen with the way things are reimbursed to, to, to get organizations to meaningfully take this on? Yeah, I think the push across the United States has been to go from setting being paid for service to being paid for value. <laughs> In other words, you get a fixed amount of money to keep people, um, uh, take care of people's health. Obviously, it's going to be better if you can prevent them from coming to um, the hospital to get a hip replacement um, if you can prevent obesity. Um, so the as the financial incentives begin to turn to keeping people well, I think you'll begin to um, address uh, those uh, factors which lead to disease later on. I mean, 60% or more of our costs are chronic diseases. And you stop and think, that's, think about the epidemics that are going on in the United States now. We still have 13% of the people smoking, um, which is the most uh, common which is the biggest cause, uh, preventable cause of lung cancer. Uh, we have 40% uh, of the people in the United States obese, which leads to diabetes, hypertension, uh, orthopedic problems, uh, cancer, breast and colon cancer. So um, we uh, are really dependent upon uh, beginning to address these issues and uh, paying for value will begin to uh, appropriately address those. Now, the, the Cleveland Clinic is obviously a, uh, a leader in value-based care and providing value-based care. Um, do you think that this model can work um, in, on a large scale in other types of healthcare systems, or will there need to be some other type of evolution of the, the value-based care system to make it effective in other places? Well, I think we have to understand uh, a couple of things. First of all, value-based care is now an 11th or 12th year of uh, effort, um, and it has made small progress um, across the country. Um, if you if you look at it, um, there are you know probably single digits um, numbers of uh, percentage-wise 
of uh, healthcare is delivered that way. And probably to be truly effective, you're gonna to have to get up to the 20, high 20s or 30% of the population being uh, cared for that, with those sort of um, efforts. The, the thing that you is gonna drive this ultimately is going to be the federal government. Um, and they have now, Medicare, Medicaid have now uh, had that uh, majority of the healthcare costs in the country. Um, and uh, now 50% of Medicare um, reimbursement is going to be value-based. Now, it's still a very long ways from uh, moving from free fee-for-service and there are, very, there are some hot spots, if you will, in the country <clears throat> that are very um, move uh, directionally, uh, very strongly towards value. Uh, I must say south of the Mason-Dixon line, um, it is uh, very uncommon uh, and very much uh, fee-for-service driven. Um, and I think that we're a very long ways from getting to uh, fee-for-service. Now, the other thing I think you, uh, aspect of this and you point to is uh, the Cleveland clinics and you have to understand the model of the Cleveland clinic. First of all, we are all uh, salaried. Uh, we all have one-year contracts. Uh, we had, in fact, I had 43 one-year contracts. Uh, we have annual professional reviews each year. Um, and um, this uh, has affects uh, what you uh, do as far as a provider is concerned. For example, it didn't make any difference to me as a cardiac surgeon as far as my uh, financial return was, whether I did a case or I didn't do a case. Uh, I would simply say, you know, I don't think you need it or I think you do need this something on the basis of their situation. Now that, and interestingly, Mayo Clinic has a similar sorts of uh, organizational structure study done uh, by the Dartmouth um, in uh, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, the Dartmouth Atlas shows that uh, the two hospitals in the country which had the lowest cost of healthcare in the last 18 months of life were Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic. So we had no incentive to do more or to do less. Uh, we simply uh, had the incentive to do what we thought was correct. Now, that model is minority of healthcare organizations in the country. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason that, um, th I think those two things go together, both uh, driving um, the value and the organizational structure of employed uh, physicians, salaried physicians without incentives. There's no incentives at the Cleveland Clinic or at the Mayo Clinic to do more or do, to do less. Dr. Cosgrove, um, I want to ask you about crisis management and the importance of communication during this um, um, super pandemic, I, I will say. Um, and how come leadership um, can impact um, decisions for the public? Yeah, I recently finished uh, reading uh, Magnuson and the Vial, um, a, a history of Winston Churchill's first year in as prime minister during the Blitz um, in uh, London. And I think that that is a great lesson in leadership. And um, 
You know, one of the things that I think is incredibly important about leading people uh, in any crisis is communication. And communication needs to be um, honest communication. Um, you have to uh, provide uh, two things. You have to provide reality and hope. And that requires a, a tremendous amount of effort uh, and communication. Churchill was a master at this. Um, I think we've seen uh, the positives of uh, how it can be done well uh, there. I think we've seen the opposite uh, in the United States from leadership uh, during the, this pandemic. Um, I think we would have been a lot better off if we had more Churchillian um, examples uh, employed with straightforward communication um, about what the reality of the situation was. Um, and I, I, one of the things that I've um, been, I, I probably would do uh, as CEO, I would uh, do some sort of uh, in-person or video communication to the entire organization more than a hundred times a year. Um, and I, I think that uh, help people understand where we're going. Um, and uh, I counted on um, data to present to us. Some of it was pretty, some of it wasn't pretty, but the, but the, the data was the data. And I think that's the lesson that you get uh, in dealing with any kind of a crisis. Uh, provide reality, provide hope. Um, and I have another question regarding like how we perceive information in this era. In this era of social media, there are famous doctors with large followings that are utilizing social media to push, to push their ideas and positions. Hospitals like the Cleveland Clinic don't seem to have the same sort of influence. How can they use social media to broaden their audience and deliver factual information? You know, there, there's an interesting dichotomy here about what you need to do. Um, first of all, I think you you know, thinking about hospitals, I think you have a responsibility to uh, share the data internally and share the data externally. Uh, now, hospitals, uh, you know, one of the things that we instituted uh, 15 or so years ago was to uh, put out outcomes books. And uh, we were the first uh, organization in the country to do this. And uh, we wanted to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly about what we did. Uh, now, that had two benefits. One, it reported to society, and if you look at it, uh, ho any hospital is a uh, community resource. And I think as a community resource, you have the responsibility to report. The second thing it did, uh, it allowed us to look each year at how we performed um, and um, internally we always found something that wasn't as good as we hoped it would be, and we began to work on it and uh, get it better and better and better. It's sort of an interesting result of that was we started doing this in uh, cardiac surgery um, in 1972. And each year, the mortality rate uh, got a little bit better. Uh, as you probably know, the Cleveland Clinic is the biggest cardiac surgical program in the United States. Last year, the mortality rate in, in coronary bypass surgery was zero. An incredible achievement, but it came from looking at the data year after year after year and reporting it. Um, and so I think that 
you know, hospitals uh, and healthcare organizations have a responsibility to report uh, how they're doing in a candid fashion, because uh, we, um, and it's not a marketing issue, it is a community responsibility issue. And I think social media is one of the ways to do it. Um, I had a LinkedIn account, um, and by the time I finished being CEO, I had 750,000 followers on that. Uh, simply uh, taking a topic that I thought was timely and uh, making a very brief uh, statement about it. And I think you can do that in a very positive sort of way. So if we uh, circle, or not really circle back, but look ahead um, past COVID-19 and looking at making gains in public health, um, you're big into digital healthcare. Um, what, what role could you see digital healthcare playing in, in the public health side of things? Well, first of all, I am uh, all about democratization of healthcare delivery. Um, I think that uh, we need to make it uh, easier, easy to get to, um, and, and it has to reach out to uh, places that uh, are hard to get that, their health care. I'm on the board of a couple of companies, which I think uh, will give you an example of that. Uh, I'm on the board of American Well, which is a telemedicine company, uh, and, and they are increasingly have the ability to reach people in remote areas. Um, and at the time that they want to be reached and the abilities that <clears throat> those uh, technologies are going to bring are going to get increasingly uh, get more and more sophisticated. The second one uh, that I'm uh, uh, on the board of is a company called Hims and Hers, uh, which is to begin to prescribe uh, medications. Um, and they start out with, uh, you know, obvious um, Medication, sexual health, uh, birth control pills, uh, very, very simple, uh, non-controversial sorts of things to be prescribed. But I think that the next step is going to be uh, cholesterol testing. Um, uh, and there's now little boxes that you can mail out that, that will give you your cholesterol level and then subsequently um, delivering um, cholesterol-lowering drugs. Uh, these are... Um, sort of initial steps that seem sort of frivolous. I think you might even think that to start with, but I think that they are a step towards beginning to make uh, healthcare in all of its forms easier to obtain and, and more uh, deliverable. So I think, um, and then the second thing that I see is, um, you know, thinking about digital health is the ability of, uh, machine learning to begin to understand and, and see things that we had no idea uh, of before. You know, it's always thought that uh, the predictors of cardiac uh, disease were related to the high blood pressure and cholesterol levels, et cetera. It turns out that recent uh, study using the, uh, CD, the uh, census data you can take and overlay um, the incidence of cardiac disease exactly on top of uh, socioeconomic uh, deprivation in Northeast Ohio. The two maps sit right on top of each other. And it's thought, you know, that it may be as much as 
of uh, the risk factors are going to be those socioeconomic factors. We had no idea that before. That's the power I think you're going to start to see um, about uh, the digital health um, coming to uh, healthcare in terms of using these huge data sets. And the data sets, by the way, are enormous. Um, I uh, just had an opportunity to look at um, the magnitude of the data sets. It turns out that uh, Epic, which is the number one healthcare, has, uh, has data on uh, a million patients. Um, and they can, uh, they looked at, during COVID, they looked at, uh, going back on, uh, from their Epic records, they looked at the risk factors for pregnant women in the first, second, and third trimester. Um, and happily found that COVID did not seem to affect uh, their pregnancy or um, in, in any adverse uh, way. Um, this is uh, data, data sets, the census um, data sets can be mined for enormous uh, opportunities. Um, they, you know, it turns out that the Cleveland Clinic has been putting every one of its cardiac patients in a data sense since 1972. It now has 180,000 uh, patients with complete uh, uh, descriptors and follow-up in those. And now we think about, okay, let's go back and get uh, a sample for their uh, genome uh, and see if we can find a genome that is responsible for cardiac disease. Enormous uh, potential uh, for um, both uh, using this artificial intelligence, uh, uh, machine learning, and all kinds of ways. You know, um, you can track the uh, COVID epidemic um, by uh, by simply uh, using the data that goes into Google. Google can tell you where the hotspots are, right down to businesses and buildings um, from looking at their the number of searches that they have. Um, and uh, just as well as the CDC can do it, they can do it faster and cheaper. And so I just uh, finally wanted to just circle back to, well, one thing you said earlier about improving public health is, is going to take more than just the, the, the hospitals. So we know places like the, the Cleveland Clinic have been leaders in entrepreneurship and innovation for uh, a long time, um, but we don't necessarily see that uh, in terms of public health outside of the hospital system. Um, now that COVID-19 is uh, here and, and we recognize the need for this all hands on deck participation, um, do you see other sectors of the economy investing more into public health and, and innovating? Or where do we go from here to get more people involved? You know, I think that's uh, beginning to raise uh, the consciousness of the community about uh, those factors. Um, let, me, let, me, um, let me go back for a second and, and uh, just uh, give you an example of, of, of this. I had an exam, I had a high school student work for me in my lab. Um, and that high school student um, graduated valedictorian of his class in high school. He then went to Yale 
uh, did the same thing there. Went to Johns Hopkins, did the same thing there. Um, and um, Dad got his training in, in cardiac and then came back to the, the Cleveland Clinic. He now is chairman of cardiac surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. His name is Mark Gillenoff. As a result of that, I realized that giving people uh, a um, opportunity to um, have summer employment, see what the healthcare system did, um, and uh, hopefully and make them enthusiastic about coming back to Cleveland. Um, so we started a program there now, 250 high school students had spent a summer internship at the Cleveland Clinic. We've now seen some of those students uh, go on to college, then go, uh, come to the Cleveland Clinic Medical School, and are now on our faculty. Um, I often hope that this model would be picked up by uh, industry, by law firms, by accounting firms, by every, uh, everybody that you would hope in Cleveland, because this is an opportunity to show uh, students that by example, you know, how you behave in a social in a professional organization, uh, give them the responsibility, give them um, a sense of ambition uh, to uh, participate in a bigger way um, in society rather than uh, having them do God knows what uh, during their summertime. Um, and um, so I would hope that, uh, that there are more and more uh, organizations that are willing to do this sort of thing, because I think it's an enormous uh, opportunity. Um, and certainly, I think that Cleveland has benefited from our program. I think that um, that uh, Cleveland Clinic has certainly benefited from this program. Uh, but it does take effort, and it does take time. And uh, but it is about raising the consciousness of the next for the next generation about how you can inspire them, train them, uh, uh, the, those sorts of things. So I'm, I hope that we will get more people to understand the investment and the future is an important thing for uh, social determinants, for our community, for the economy of Cleveland, for all our good. Yeah, so my capstone research actually focused around racism as a public health crisis in Cuyahoga County. Um, and, and looking specifically at that. So I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing, you know, your perspective on, on, on that in this county, especially with the declarations that we've seen um, at the county level, by the city council, at the Cleveland Department of Public Health, um, and how we can meaningfully address those inequities in our county that we're seeing. I think if you go back and you look at, um... This goes right back to what we have talked about and about the social determinants of health, where you're living, you know, what sort of, uh, you know, status your health is in going into it. It's very clear that one of the main risk factors uh, of uh, COVID uh, is obesity. Um, these are all the social determinants of health, and I think we have uh, demonstrated uh, these uh, inequities, and I think the inequities ultimately go back to um, the economy and the economics. Uh, and 
you know, you stop and think housing, food, education, um, healthcare, all those things are basically the common denominator of all those is, uh, is poverty. And uh, we lead the nation in childhood poverty. We're number two in the nation in uh, people of middle uh, working age poverty. And we're number three in the country in terms of elderly poverty. Um, and uh, those are all factors that enter into the, uh, the factors that cause uh, the uh, inequities in um, our uh, health and uh, our uh, health care. So um, I think we have to go back to think about the root causes of, uh, you know, what's, what's causing this uh, these uh, inequities and in healthcare delivery. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, addressing those root causes is, is very important. And if we take a bigger step back and we look at you know everything, even in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and what people have been able to witness in terms of these social determinants of health, but also with the healthcare system in general, um, we talked about fee-for-service um, and, and we can think about how pressures on the system are often drivers for change. Do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic has served as the change that is needed, um, that, or the pressure that is needed to induce some sort of change? Or where, where do you think um, we're headed from, from this point? Yeah, I think it's been a, been a tremendous impetus for change. Uh, but I, I, I have to go back to um, looking at the healthcare system. Um, the healthcare system is very slow to change. And it's slow change, I think, for two reasons. Um, for this, and let me give you an example of how slow it is to change. Once something has uh, been demonstrated to be um, a superior way to treat something, um, it is 13 years before it becomes standard of care. And that has not changed at all in the last several decades. Um, and so let's go back and say, why, why is that the case? Well, I think there's a number of things that, that cause that. Obviously, uh, people are uh, slow to change uh, because uh, of you're dealing with people's lives. I think probably more importantly is the nature of physicians. I mean, you stop and think that we were all selected to go to medical school because we got through organic chemistry. And all we did in organic, do in organic chemistry is memorize. And then we went to medical school and we had four more years of memorizing. And then we became house officers and we did exactly what we were told by either the chief resident or the junior staff. And then we became junior staff and we were told what to do by the chief of staff. And now we arrive at 40 or 45 um, and we've done nothing but be taught uh, how to do uh, the uh, no no uh, courses in creative writing or um, thinking or poetry or, or art appreciation, um, but all about uh, following uh, the prescribed path. So there's no has been very little incentive for people to change. Um, they have been selected not because of their creativity, and they've been trained. Any creativity they have has been uh, beaten out of them. Um, by the system. So I think that you have to blame the healthcare delivery system and the leaders of the healthcare delivery system for that um, uh, personality of uh, leaders in healthcare. Um, and I think it's unfortunate, but it's a fact. 
Um, and I hope that COVID has been a major impetus for change. And I think uh, that change is going to be uh, brought about uh, the same way wars have brought about major changes in healthcare uh, treatment. I think you see the same thing in COVID across the country and hopefully around the world. I just wanted to say, I don't have a question, but that last point is something that I've, I've been thinking about a lot with, with how medical training happens and, and how the, there's sort of been like a lack of that critical thinking aspect and that creativity aspect that's so needed in order to understand um, these issues. So I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that from your perspective too, that, you, that you've um, experienced that and see that as a, as a need for change. I, you said that um, healthcare is hard to change, or there's a lot of things, a lot of factors for healthcare to change. But in terms of currently, there's um, news that there might be uh, an expansion of the ACA or a different um, Medicare for all um, programs that might um, happen here in the United States if if it passed or if it happened in the future. Um, what do you? What's your take on that? And how do you feel? Or do you feel the United States is ready for um, that um, type of healthcare? Well, I don't think we're gonna see Medicare for all. Um, I think the, the current administration uh, is not uh, particularly inclined to do something like that. I think you will see pressure to expand uh, Medicaid um, to all of the states, uh, but I, I don't see uh, from uh, the record uh, any um, inclination in the next four years uh, that we're going to have a major push to Medicare for all. And similarly, I don't think we're going to drop it to 65 to 55 um, in terms of eligibility. Um, so I, I, you know, similarly, uh, I didn't think that there was much chance that, um, that the uh, Trump administration was going to get rid of the ACA. I don't think there's much chance that uh, the Biden administration is going to expand it uh, significantly um, during the next uh, four years. So I, I doubt we're going to see major political uh, legislation that is going to change uh, that aspect of care. One of the one of the issues um, that has happened in healthcare is. Uh, you know, healthcare has gotten to be a big business. Um, and you stop and think uh, back, um, let's say 50 years ago, um, you know, every hospital was a, a small community hospital. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a big business. I mean, because um, there was not a lot of things you could do in healthcare. You went there to get your fractured leg fixed or your deliver your child um, or your gallbladder or your hernia uh, fixed or something like that. There was no neurosurgery, no cardiac surgery, um, no um, major orthopedic uh, joint replacements, et cetera. And as more things have come along and life has been extended and there's more uh, therapy, the healthcare is gonna be a bigger and bigger and bigger business. Um, and uh, with that, the, the financial uh, ramifications of it have gone to be uh, substantially uh, greater too. I would say that um, one of my major, my major deficit when I became CEO was I'd never been to business school. 
and I was running a $4 billion business. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic can be a Fortune 500 company if it was a for-profit. Um, and you certainly wouldn't have anybody running it, a uh, Fortune 500 company, and didn't have the slightest idea what the parentheses were in P&L sheets. Um, and by the way, those aren't good. Just so, um, but anyhow, um, it took me a while to, to figure that out. Now, um, and so I was heavily dependent upon uh, people who had the business human uh, um, that I just didn't have. Now, on in the defensive side of that, it turns out that hospitals, only about 10% of the hospitals in the country are run by physicians. But those 10% of the hospitals have uh, higher quality uh, than hospitals are run by business people. Uh, my predecessor used to say that it's easier to teach a doctor business than it is to teach a businessman medicine. And I think there's something to that. But I think that the combination of the two really is what you need. You need to have uh, people who understand, uh, you know, purchasing and, uh, you know, all the factors that go into making a organization financially viable and efficient, um, along with uh, the individuals who understand the disease processes and where the disease processes are going and how uh, the people who are delivering uh, the healthcare uh, actually think. So I think it's a combination, uh, but there's no question that as it's gotten bigger uh, and there's more payers involved, um, there's more um, cost of administration. Uh, just to give you an example, the Cleveland Clinic has 2,000 people work in revenue cycle. Um, that's a lot of people. Um, and that, uh, and they have 500 people that work in a call center. That's a lot of people. Um, but it's, it's a big, uh, this case is now a $10 billion business. And I don't think you can do that without business acumen as well as you have medical acumen. So it actually perfectly sets up our last question, which is about uh, future public health practitioners, current students and future students. And I, I think all of us know that public health is one of those fields where if you don't work in public health, you don't really think about it much or even notice that it is, it is a huge part of your life until something is wrong or something happens. And I think COVID has taught people that. Uh, and I think that there might be a renewed interest uh, in future students in, in wanting to enter the field of yes. medicine or public health uh, or healthcare in general. So, you know, what, what advice or suggestions would you give, uh, given your, your career to students who are interested in, in entering the field here in the near future? Yeah, I think I, I would say this about everything in healthcare. Um, and people say, well, do doctors still want to go in? Do people still want to go in and become doctors? And I think uh, the answer is, Yes, um, it is a great profession uh, in healthcare. Um, you're not going to get wealthy like you will on Wall Street, but you're going to be you're going to be well paid. Um, but on top of that, you're going to have tremendous self, uh, job satisfaction. I mean, how many people can go home every day and say, you know, I helped a lot of people. And increasingly, you know, as I get older and my friends uh, get older with me, 
they are increasingly jealous uh, of the fact that I've had this opportunity to really influence people's lives. And, you know, many of my friends have been very successful in business and uh, in investments and et cetera. And many of them are really quite jealous of the fact that while I am certainly not in the same financial situation they are, uh, I have had a great career and I can look back on it and say, you know, I helped a lot of people and I feel really good about it. Um, it's hard to, hard to think of another uh, profession that has the same uh, sort of opportunities and perhaps the clergy does, um, but um, and in some cases uh, others do, but um, certainly you have that in healthcare. And I think people are gonna be continued to be attracted to it and good people are for just those reasons. So what you're saying is uh, you would encourage people to, to enter the public health uh, or medical Absolutely. field, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Every, every asset, whether it's public health or nursing or um, uh, doctors or, you know, I, I encourage it. Uh, the things that are happening now are so incredibly exciting. Um, the advances are just uh, mind boggling. In, in whether it's in delivery or whether it's in research or whether it's uh, healthcare uh, administration, uh, things are, are, are uh, great, greatly accelerated uh, on an unprecedented level. And so I think it's a, a wonderfully exciting and, you know, I could, I could tell you stories about people that I got up in the middle of the night to uh, operate on who 20 years later sent me a picture of their grandkids. Nice. And I think the same can be said for almost any, any uh, aspect of healthcare delivery. Well, Dr. Cosgrove, we, we want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It was, uh, it was a real pleasure. Uh, we know you're a busy guy, so we appreciate you taking the time to, to share your expertise. Uh, and thanks for being here with us today. Totally my pleasure. And thanks very much for great questions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you to Ibrahim and Ria and, and BJ for, for jumping on. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. Uh, and we will catch everybody next time.